This is episode 505 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. There are many very familiar passages in the Bible. For example, we have John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's red print, something Jesus said. Later in John 15, we have Jesus saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You can read more about that later. But today, we're going to be looking at another familiar passage that serves as both a call to salvation as well as an invitation to the higher Christian life, to a life of service and unbroken intimacy with the Lord. That passage is found in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, and it goes like this. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can you see both the call to salvation and the invitation to sanctification? I sure can. So join with us today as we discover the life in him after salvation, the higher Christian life, as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, we've uh, on Tuesday, we've been talking about the life of Christ. And one of the reasons why we've been doing that, as you'll find out towards the end of this message, the best way we can learn about him is to study him. He was all man and he was all God. He wasn't uh, any less of a man than you are right now. He wasn't any less of a God when he was on earth than he has always been and will always be. He suffered and uh, things that you and I can't even imagine. He's our perfect high priest who has been tested in every area like we have been tested yet as a man was able to persevere. His death provided us, and we talked about it this week in the uh, emails that I sent out to you. His death provided for us bold access through the veil that he ripped into the Holy of Holies so we can have intimacy with the Lord. And the same spirit that he promised that um, he would send to us the comforter, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside in John chapter 14, the same spirit he promised them that came to the church in Acts chapter 2 is the same spirit who lives in you today. Everything that they did, we can do. All the power of the Godhead that existed in them exists in us, and if Christ tarries another hundred years, will exist in believers after us. As it says in Colossians chapter 2, we are complete in him. The only difference between us experiencing completeness in him and experience the life that we're experiencing right now is pretty much us, and it's pretty much our desire. And sometimes we don't think that we're worthy of living an over-the-top Christian life, or sometimes the cost is too great, and hear me clearly, the cost will get even greater in our nation uh, and actually in our world right now. But once the desire's there, everything changes. It's like Christ lays out the meal for us, and all we have to do is eat. And we usually eat when we're hungry. And so what I'm hoping today is to 
stir up a hunger in you like the Lord has stirred up in me for more than what we're currently experiencing in him because as I've been sharing with you for the last millennium, we are going to need it. So we're going to look at one segment of scripture today, but I need to kind of give you a quick overview of two chapters in order to put all this in context. We're going to begin in chapter 10 of Matthew, which happens to be my favorite gospel account. Here are these incredible, encouraging words where Jesus has these disciples, these 12 guys, and of course there's an entourage that's following him, yet he only chose these 12 at this time. Later on, he chooses 70, so he chooses these plus part of the entourage. And it's like he was saying, all right, guys, I'm, uh, you've been my apprentice. I'm going to go ahead and send you out. I'm not going to be with you. I want you to do what you've seen me do while I've been with you. Uh, Lord, we've seen you do some really crazy things. Yeah, same things I want you to do. I'm going to give you my authority. I'm going to give you my power. I'm actually going to let my spirit rest in you, kind of as a prototype of what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. So you're going to emulate me. You're going to be me. I'm going to work through you as you go out into these towns and cities and hamlets, even though I'm not physically with you. What you've seen me do, I'm giving you the power to do. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. This is authority. This is exosia. This is the authority. He gave them power and authority over unclean spirits. You have all the power over the demonic realm to cast them out and to heal. The word is all, all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. If you sum up Jesus' ministry, that's pretty much what he did. He healed diseases. He cast out demons. Now, he did multiply loaves and fishes and walk on water and some of those things. But if you have the great categories, he met people's needs. He delivered them from demonic oppression, and then he healed blind people. He raised people from the dead. He healed lepers. That's what he did to authenticate the message of the kingdom of God. And so verse 2 through 4, he lists the 12 disciples. And then verse 5, he gives them instructions. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, I don't want you to get caught up in politics or racial division, and I don't want your flesh to dig into this, so don't go the way of the Gentiles, because I know that right now you're not mature enough to do that, nor enter into a city of Samaritans, because you have a prejudice about them, and I understand that. We're not going to get sidetracked on that. Let me make it really easy for you. Go to your people. Go to people just like you. But rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, do what I have done. Preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, what, what do you mean the kingdom of heaven is at hand? The kingdom of heaven has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is imminent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And when you go, I want you to go in faith. I don't want you to go worrying about anything. We're in Matthew chapter 10. Four chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear or, or where you're going to live, that God takes care of all those things. Here are the lilies of the field, and here's the birds of the air, and if God takes care of them, 
He'll take care of you. Your job is to seek first the kingdom of God, what they're proclaiming, and God's righteousness, and everything else will be taken care of. So when you go out, I want you to live by that faith. Verse 9, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Don't take your credit cards. Don't save up a bunch of money. Don't spend three years on deputations traveling around the United States trying to get churches to support you at 50 bucks a month until all your needs are met and then you can go on the mission field. Go, trust me at this. Nor, verse 10, a bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, nothing. If you'll notice, there are S's on the end of this. You have a staff, that's enough. You have one tunic, that's plenty. You don't need double or triple of those things to take care of your needs. I will do that. For a worker is worthy of his food. A worker is worthy of his substance. A worker is worthy of being taken care of. Between verse 11 and verse 15, he talks about when you go into a town, you find somebody who's worthy, you stay with them, you bless them. Some towns will accept you, some towns will not. Well, what happens if the towns don't accept us? What can we expect if we go out proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is here? And the next 10 verses deal with that. I'm not going to read them to you, but they begin in verse 16 and they go all the way to verse 26. And basically they say this, wherever you go as light, you better expect darkness to try to put it out. They're going to do everything they can to destroy you. I'm sending you out as sheep and a bunch of wolves and they're going to take you and they're going to take you to the courts and they're going to command that you recant Christ, but don't worry about that. I'll give you the words to say at that very minute, brother will lead or deliver a brother to death. Members of a man's own family will become his enemies. You'll be hated, verse 22, by all for my name's sake, but don't worry about it. When they persecute you in this city, don't lament over it. Go to the next and go to the next and go to the next. And before all the cities are taken care of, I will return. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they've called me, Jesus says, Beelzebub. How much more will they call those who are servants of mine or members of my household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So who are we to fear? And those are the next few verses. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Well, I'll, I'll suffer persecution. Absolutely. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him, one person, him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he goes on to talk about the great value that they have in God's hand. The rest of the chapter, he talks about the fact that he didn't come to bring peace on the earth, he came to bring war. I mean, you and I are light and darkness where light has been infused into a world that belongs to Satan. 
and we haven't been infused into that world to, to hide in the corner and cover ourselves with these bushels so nobody will see our light. And please, darkness, just leave us alone and let us live our quiet little lives here on earth. We're designed to be put on a table to light the entire room because darkness is the absence of light. And whenever you turn a light on in a dark room, there's no struggle. It's not like the light's trying to go into the corner there, but the darkness is fighting it off. And there's this big struggle taking place that we watch as the light's on. Immediately when the light is on, darkness vanishes. True? That's the imagery he gave here for you and I in this very dark world. So he has sent them off with his instructions. Chapter 11. And now Jesus is alone. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he, not them and he, but he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. He was alone. And then while he's doing that, John the Baptist hears about him. And so John the Baptist sends some of his disciples and they want to know if he's actually the Messiah or not, or should they wait for someone else? And, and Jesus spends the next 18 verses talking about John the Baptist and this generation, and there's no one greater than he, uh, but nevertheless, as great as he is, that the, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than he. And that takes us up to verse 19. Verse 20, it says, then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. There has been no place on planet Earth that had as much opportunity to receive Christ than Galilee at that time. He went into every one of these cities and he performed unbelievable miracles and crowds followed him and the adulation of what he did was there and yet people refused to believe. And so at this particular point in time, his disciples are still gone. At this particular point in time, in the latter part of chapter 11, Jesus begins to chastise the cities, the major cities in Galilee, whom he did all these miracles that we've read about here and in the book of John because of their unbelief. And he says it would have been better for Sodom and Gomorrah than you on the day of judgment because someone not as great as I am was in Sodom and Gomorrah and, and they didn't repent and you're not repenting. And I mean, he just, it really tears into him. Verse 23, his adopted hometown. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if, if the mighty works done, or the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it be, shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. All right. So the disciples are on their way back. Jesus basically has one more statement that he's going to make, and it's the statement we're going to look at today. It is um, a very familiar passage so familiar that we miss the meaning. Uh, almost every commentary that you will look at, and rightly so, will tell you this is a passage about salvation. And it is to a degree. But there's something deeper in here than just salvation. 
There's a salvation statement, and then there's a statement about sanctification. There's a salvation statement, and then there's what those who accept the first statement do with his second statement that has to do with ministry and the deeper Christian life and making a difference with your life in the world in which we live. And what I want to do today is, um, and again, I've tried this several times, and we have a tendency in church not to want to say anything because we're set up in a classroom setting. That's the way churches are in the West. And so therefore, you have the teacher or the preacher, and we're just supposed to take in and take notes and stuff of that nature. And if the preacher asks a question like, hey, does anybody, what does this mean to you? We don't say anything because we've got this fifth grade and 10th grade and 11th grade thing burned in our head where I don't want to raise my hand and give the wrong answer because the teacher will go, eh, I'll get a bad grade. It doesn't work that way. What we really should do is cut this up in a big circle like a family, like we're eating around a uh, uh, dinner table or something. And then when someone says, hey, how do you feel about this? We feel, a, feel a, a freedom to share because we're looking at everybody else's face rather than the back of somebody's head. But nevertheless, this is how churches digress in our culture. So what I want to do is I want to ask some questions about the text, and I want you to give me some honest answers, how you feel about it, how it speaks to you. And what will happen, which always happens, is that if I don't get some quick answers, I just take over. Is that not true? Karen, I talk about, I thought you were going to have people share. Well, I tried, but so we're going to, we're going to kind of do that together if you would. We're going to look at this passage. Jesus is alone. He has just chastised cities for their unbelief. His disciples are now gone. And so it says, at that time, Jesus answered and said. Doesn't say what question was asked. And actually, this is kind of an old Jewish way of communicating a continuation of a discussion. But Jesus answered and said, don't know whether or not that word came from God or somebody else asked the question, but he turns it into a praise. He turns it into a prayer. Now, here's what he says. I thank you, Father. I uh, had a really bad relationship with my father. And so the father attribute of God, the father revelation of God was difficult for me to understand. Some of you had wonderful fathers. Some of you wish you had a husband as good as your father was. I can't relate to that. So maybe that makes it easier for you to understand the fatherhood of God. Some of you may not have even had a father. Some of you may have had multiple fathers. But the fact is, Jesus is relating to the perfect father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, God, you, God, have hidden these things. No, no, wait a second. God has hidden something from certain people. And when it talks about these things, what he's talking about is the context of the last two chapters. You have hidden the kingdom of God. You've hidden the truth about the kingdom, what's implied in the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, the expectations of the kingdom. You, Father, have hidden the kingdom of God where I'm coming, Jesus says, as the king. You have hidden something from certain people. You have blinded certain people's eyes. Or maybe 
you're playing hide and seek with them. Maybe it's a game. Maybe you're hiding it over here and say, hey guys, go see if you can find that and come back like an Easter egg hunt or something of that nature. That you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. Well, that sounds like something out of the book of Proverbs. The wise and the prudent. Don't we want to be wise and prudent? Well, yes, wise and prudent is a good thing. Wise and prudent means I'm able to discern. I'm able to understand. I have problem-solving skills that I am um, I'm skilled in this area. I'm able to look at the circumstances. I'm a critical thinker, and I'm able to deduct this and, and figure this out and come up to a logical conclusion. Don't we want to be wise? Because the opposite of wise is stupid. Don't we want to be prudent? The opposite of prudent is foolish. And so we have a tendency of looking at this as being a smart thing. Because when I was a kid, I was totally dependent on somebody else and believed everything that my parents told me. But now that I became an adult, I was able to critically examine that to see whether my parents were right or not. Maybe they had a prejudice. Maybe there was something wrong with them. They once believed this way, but now I've deconstructed my faith to the point that now I'm more enlightened and I believe something different and they're old fashioned, but I'm renewed. And in our culture, wise and prudent is great. And it works in every single aspect of your life except spiritually. You realize that? Except spiritually. Now, it's good to be wise, to be able to understand Scripture, to be skilled, to be able to figure out exactly what it's saying. If, if um, your job is to teach your children or if your job is to communicate the gospel, it's great to get training to be able to do that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about your ability, our desire to take in a teaching, to take in a truth, funnel it through your fallen understanding of things and decide whether or not you're going to accept it or not, whether or not it means what it truly says, or maybe it means something different. There's a religious system here that had all sorts of rituals that they had to go through to somehow make themselves holy enough to come to God. You, you had to fast and you had to read your Bible, the Old Testament. You had to give your alms. You had to do all these kind of things, pray so many times a day and go to a synagogue, all this kind of stuff. And there's all this weight, this burden that's on you. And, and if you're a wise man, you'll do that. If you're not, then you'll be some reprobate. And I mean, it's just tons of stuff going on. That Jesus said when he's praying to his father, he says, Father, I thank you for this. I thank you. You are God of heaven and earth that you have hidden the kingdom of God. You've hidden the truth of what life is like in your kingdom. You have literally hidden what it means to live an abundant life and dependence on God Almighty. And you've hidden it from those people who think they're smart and think they're wise and think they all have it together. But you've chosen to reveal it to somebody and that person is babes. Why, why the despairing? I mean, you have hidden it from the PhDs and you have revealed it to an infant, to a breastfeeding newborn. Why can't it be you have hidden it from the college graduate, but you revealed it to the high school student where there's not that much this difference between those two, just a, just a degree. But instead, it's as far as you can go over here to the prudent and the wise and the self-secured and the self-satisfied, all the way over here to a babe. 
to a babe. So what are the characteristics of being a babe? In case you're interested, the word actually means infant or newborn. Newborn. Someone who's, I don't know, week old, month old, doesn't really matter. Someone who's breastfeeding. I mean, when you think about a babe that you have, that you have revealed it to them, and by the way, in, in case you're thinking God was outlandish in that, Jesus said, it seemed good for you to do that, God, in your sight. That was your choice. And you were pleased with doing it that way. So, those of you with small children, those of you who have had small children, give me some characteristics of a babe. What makes a babe more desirable here from receiving truth about the kingdom of God than the PhD in religion? What's the difference between the two? Describe the characteristics of a babe. Anybody? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, babe can't do anything. If you really think about it, we as a species in God's design are dependent on someone else longer than any other of his created species. You realize that? You know, a, an animal can fend for itself in a month or two months or something of that nature, but, but an infant, what, it's years so they can take care of themselves. Absolute dependent. Anything else? They're open because they trust. They trust. I mean, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> He didn't have any children, but Adolf Hitler could have had a son, and they would have taken this little bitty son and placed it in Hitler's arms, and the son would have not known anything bad about his father. He would have just loved his dad. No, because absolutely trusting, absolute dependence, everything. Trusting. In our culture, it's like, well, pretty soon you're going to get old enough to make your own decisions. And when you make your own decisions, that's when maturity takes place. And then you get your teenage years. And your teenage years, you realize how stupid your parents are. Because all your parents want to do is hold you back. You don't need to hang around that person. Quit trying to make my friends. You know, just because the guy's got out of prison for the last 12 years and he's 14 years older than I am, why can't I date him at 16? You know, you're trying to hold me back. And, you know, the parents are so stupid and dumb. And, and that goes through the teenage years. James Dobson said, our goal as parents for teenagers is just to get them through it. And then they become 18, 19, or 20, and they go off to college. And when they go off to college, they just extend their teenage years, four more years. Then they get a job. Then they get married. Then they have kids. Then they call you back up and apologize for how bad they were when they were teenagers. Have you noticed that? Something happens. That's what our society says. The smarter you get, the more independent you get, the more free thinking you get, the more less dependent on anybody. That's the sight of manhood and maturity in our culture and our society. And Jesus says it's exactly the opposite. So we're dependent, totally dependent. Is that what you said? 100% dependent. And then over here, we're trusting. Anything else? Right, right. They're unable to, to make that decision themselves. There's no rebellion in them. They, all they know is that, that they have a need, they cry, and the loving parent takes care of that. And the right and wrong is determined by the one who loves them the most, right? Just like with us and our relationship with God. True? Anything else? 
Very teachable. Very teachable until they reach that certain age when they become super rebellious. You know what? Um, um, in our culture, we talk about uh, narcissism as this kind of mental disease, this satanic attack that's kind of affecting a lot of people. And let me tell you what I have discovered in my years of ministry, especially in counseling, is the worst possible trait for someone to have is to not be teachable. I'm not teachable. And I know tons of people that aren't. If I'm not teachable, that means I don't have to learn anything anybody else says because I already know. And that makes you the standard and center of your life. And uh, the most successful people that I know, both spiritually and otherwise, are those people who are always teachable. So here's what Jesus says. I've gone about teaching the kingdom of God. I've just sent my disciples out manifesting the kingdom of God. And I thank you, God, that you haven't revealed the secret of the kingdom to the smart and wise and prudent people, but instead you've revealed it to those people who will receive it, who are teachable, who are 100% dependent, who are trusting, who will believe what I say, who will understand I am God and you are not. And then he goes on. Those of you who are struggling with trusting me in all things, even though it was good in the Father's sight to do that, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. Let me tell you what God has entrusted to me, and let me tell you how blessed you are if you're a babe. He says, all things, by the way, that word in the Greek is pas. And as I shared with you before, the most powerful words in Scripture is not propitiation that you can't spell. Some of the most powerful words in Scripture are all or each or every. Circle those small ones or therefore, because all means all. The word literally means each, every, the whole in totality without exception. All things, all things in heaven and earth, all things ever created, all things in the past, all things present, all things to come, all things have been, past tense, delivered to me, Jesus says. And the word delivered there, of course, means to, to give or to hand over. God the Father has given everything to Christ. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. Wow. What if Jesus was living in our midst today? So, so everything that God knows, everything that he is, all the power, all the judgment, all the blessings, all the miracles, all the presence, everything that we had pictures of in the Shekinah glory and in the Old Testament, everything about God has already, past tense, been handed over, delivered, and given to you. Yes, that's why I'm saying, listen to what I'm saying, trust what I'm saying, because I know all things. Wow, so it was given to you like a gift? It was given to you like an inheritance? It was given to you like, um, like a tangible asset or something? I mean, how was it given to you? No, no, you're missing the point. No one knows the Son except the Father. Now, you and I have talked about Edo, and we've talked about gnosko when it comes to the word know here. Of course, gnosko is Strong's 1097. It means to know experientially. And Edo, of course, is to know cognitively. This word is neither of those. 
This word is a different word. And if you want to look it up, it's 1921 on the Strong's. And this word means to know completely, to know everything there is to know. It's complete knowledge and to know fully. It's not just with um, Gnosko and Edo is to know experientially or to know cognitively and not experientially. Um, this one, of course, is to know everything, to know totally experientially, to know totally cognitively, to know everything there is to know to the minute detail about something. And Jesus says, no one knows me completely, totally, without exception, except the Father. All right, I kind of understand that. This is the one that gets scary. Nor does anyone know the Father which is the exact same word here, except the Son. Well, no one knows the Father as much as the Son knows him, and no one knows the Son as much as the Father knows him. So the two of them have a really tight relationship. But where does that leave us? I mean, we, we want to, can, can I cash in on some of this? Can I be part of this? Is there, is there some intimacy that is available for me, kind of like the intimacy that you and the Father have? Well, yes. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son desires, chooses, wishes, wills to reveal him. Wow. So so knowing you means that you have chosen and desired and you wish based on your own good pleasure to reveal what you know about the Father, which is complete knowledge to us, to those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's part of the election process. It's part of you understanding who God is. Now, Jesus said in John chapter uh, 14 that he is going to be leaving them And you should rejoice that I'm physically being taken away because when I am taken away, I will send you someone else. I will send you another helper. Again, I wrote about that this week. Another helper, an alos, a helper just like me who will be in you and will be with you forever. The spirit of truth. If you read the rest of that chapter, who will reveal all things to you. He will take everything from me and reveal it to you. And what is that everything from him that he'll reveal to us? The intimate, complete understanding and knowledge of the Father that only Jesus knows. By the way, that Holy Spirit is the Spirit who lives in you. I don't know why we struggle. I don't know why we worry. I don't know why we fret. It's because we're, maybe we're so worried about the world right here and things we can't control and things are going to work out. And oh my gosh, things are going to get really bad right now. And I may get a bad report from the doctor and this may happen and that may happen. And where's the sovereignty of God in this? Everything about the Father, we should be able to know. And then he goes on. And then this is the amazing part that I want you to get a hold of today. There are two types of believers listed here. The first one is the normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill believer like most of us. And the first passage has to do with salvation. After sharing about this incredible blessing that comes from knowing Christ, he tells us how to come to know him. And here's what he says, come to me. 
Well, that's my job. My job is to come to him. So I hear his message. I understand the the lack in my own heart. The Holy Spirit creates in me this desire for him. Regeneration takes place. I place my faith in him. Conversion takes place. I'm justified by the by the, uh, the power of God, I'm coming to Christ as a broken, sinful man. If I come to Christ any other way, nothing happens. But I come to him and he gives me peace and security and rest. He says, come to me. Who? All. The gospel is open to all. All who have a need, all who can't make it on their own, all that are tired of living in their life of sin, This would be the evangelist message he would give to you. All who labor and are heavy laden and burdened with problems and sin and the guilt and shame that I can't get rid of, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will in exchange give you rest, peace, comfort in him. So this is where the evangelist would then take this passage and share it with you about how you come to Christ with all your sin and shame and frailties and everything, and you're tired of the life. Aren't you tired? Aren't you sick and tired of being sick and tired? I am. I labor and I strive to do what is right, but I can't. And I'm heavy laden by the guilt of my sin. Who will take that sin off me? I just want peace and I want rest and security and safety and assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ that I am loved. And so this is the passage that they would share. This is the first set of believers. This is you when you first came to Jesus. Lord, I recognize my sin. I've heard the gospel message. I just don't want to live this way anymore. I just can't deal with this anymore. God, if you're God and I believe you are, I'm asking you to come into my heart and forgive me my sins. I confess my sins. Would you, if there's anything you can do in my life, I give my life to you now. Do you remember all that? From this day forward, I'm a new creature in Christ. That's the first set of belief. First set of um, believers. Step one is salvation. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're in Christ and you're in here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is what you have already done, you know, and, and maybe it's had a lasting impact on your life. Maybe it hasn't. Maybe when you first got saved spiritually, of course, you were a 10 because you've never been closer to the Lord than you are there. Maybe you've slipped down, so you're satisfied with being a seven or eight or something. Maybe you, maybe you continued on with your journey with Christ and you're growing in the likeness of him daily. That's great. If you're like most Christians, you're stagnated. You're stale. You just got a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the world, and we're just kind of okay with this not really hot, not really cold, kind of lukewarm kind of life that is nauseating to him and probably nauseating to you. But it's okay. I came to Jesus, and I gave him my life, and he gave me rest for a season, but I don't know God like he promised he would tell me. I don't know God completely or intimately. As a matter of fact, I don't even have a desire to know God that great. I do my devotion. I pray a little bit. And what's wrong? I mean, why is nothing happening here? Which brings us to the second believer, which is a life of sanctification, which is what we call the higher Christian life which is a holy life, which is a life that's devoted and sanctified to him. This only happens after you come to Jesus. It's now I've come to Jesus and he's given me rest, but my soul 
is still troubled because the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And, and I'm, I'm struggled. My heart, my mind, my will, my volition are not sanctified. They still belong to me and they still push me in areas that I don't want to go. And I used to be real spiritual and it cost me something and it was difficult. And so now I've gravitated down to where I'm okay. I'm not so spiritual that the world bothers me, but I've learned to be comfortable in my apathy, in my less than what I've used to be at some point in my life. Hence the desire for an elevated experience with Christ, the higher Christian life to first just recapture ground we've freely given up and then move into the stratosphere. Here's what he says. You've already come to me and I've already given you rest. Now it's time to experience me. Now it's time to be involved in ministry with me. Now it's time for you to do what I am doing because I didn't save you so you can put your light under a bushel so nobody can see it. I saved you so you can be like me, the chapter before. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I don't want to be persecuted. Then you're not going to do this. And if you're not going to do this, then you should be satisfied where you're at, a five, six, seven, or eight, and live a marginally okay life here on earth and get to heaven and spend the rest of your life, assuming the Lord, hopefully the Lord won't allow us to do that, but spending the rest of your life with the regrets of, my life on earth was just a blip compared to eternity, and I threw stuff away for nothing. Here's what he says. Take my yoke upon you. I don't even know what that means. Well, that's a yoke. It's uh, not something we're very familiar with for those non-farmers in here, which is probably almost everybody. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, what is a yoke? Well, it's this very kind of cumbersome thing where they strap two animals side by side together with a yoke. They have to walk in unison. They learn to have to pull together. If they can't pull together, if the one on the right is pulling all the time and the one on the left is kind of lagging, then the one on the right does all the work and he gets the chafe marks on the shoulder. The one on the right, it doesn't exactly work. The cart actually starts veering this way, then going straight. So the guy riding the cart has to take corrective measures. I mean, it's the idea of being unequally yoked. You don't want to be unequally yoked with someone who doesn't walk like you and think like you. It isn't a lot like you. If we put a cow over here and a dog over here, it ain't exactly going to work. They're unequally yoked. Take my yoke upon you. Meaning what? I've got, I've got work to do. There's things that are going on. I saved you to be an emissary of me here on the earth. There's my yoke, and I want you to take my yoke and put it on you so you and I can walk together. You and I can work together. I, I know nothing about this from a personal standpoint. I did a lot of reading on it this week, and I discovered that a lot of farmers, especially back then, is they would take a seasoned ox that knew exactly what he was doing and pair them with a young ox so the young ox could learn from the seasoned ox the way that you're supposed to walk. And he would emulate what the seasoned ox has done so the two of them would now walk together. Take my yoke upon you. And as a young ox, learn from me. 
Let me teach you how to be about my business in this world, which is why I saved you in the first place. Let me teach you by you being connected with me. It's not an independent relationship. It's not like you can go anywhere else. You're voluntarily choosing to yoke yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is after you have already come to him. This is this, as we've talked about since day one, it seems, this commitment to a sold-out life to Jesus. I need to learn from you. I have a young cow on the left or a young animal on the left and a, and a seasoned one on the right. And when you walk, I'll walk. At the pace that you walk, I'll, I'll match myself with you. You are the master. I am the student. I'm the disciple. It's not enough that I'm better than you. It's just enough that I be like you. Whatever, whenever you eat, I eat. Whenever you drink, I drink. Whenever you're tired, I'll be tired. Whenever you go to bed, I'll go to bed because I'm just like you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. How do we learn from you? Well, we study you. We look at your word. We pray the prayers that you prayed. We understand how you handle things. We, we, you're, you're our perfect model, the perfect high priest. You're a man here on earth experiencing things just like we are. That's why on Tuesday night, that's all we're talking about is Jesus. And we've been doing it for, I don't know, eight months, a year, it seems like, just only about Jesus. We're trying to learn from him, not doctrine from Paul. We've dealt with that and we'll deal with that later. Old Testament passages, we deal with those at another time. But on Tuesday, we just want to learn from you, Jesus. I want to put my yoke on. I want to connect myself with you and learn from you. And the Lord says, by the way, um, do, you know, do you know how tall Jesus was? Do you know what color hair he had? Skin color? Color was eyes. Well, according to the movies, he was blonde with purple teeth and blue eyes. Not exactly. Know what I mean? But that's, that's how the movies go. And no, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how tall he was. I don't know how short he was. I don't know how much he weighed. I don't know anything. Scripture didn't, scripture didn't even lay any of that out for us. Because if it did, when it says that we're to walk like Jesus, if we realized that Jesus was 5'11 and had hair to hear, we would all you know, try to be 5'11 and cut our hair to here because it's easier to emulate someone on the outside than it is on the inside. So there's no physical description of Christ at all, other than the fact that the Bible says in the Old Testament that it was nothing assuming about him. He wasn't anything that you'd be naturally drawn to. He wasn't the Tony Robbins kind of guy. He was just an ordinary person. But there is a character description of Jesus, and it's found right here. Jesus says, let me tell you the only thing about me you need to know that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gosh, we don't like the word gentle. Gentle seems a little girly man, as Arnold Schwarzenegger would say. We just don't like that because our heroes are not gentle. Rambo is not gentle. Tough guys like that and, you know, that mow everybody down. Clint Eastwood is not gentle. John Wayne was not gentle. But that's not what the word means. When it talks about being gentle, it means that he is meek and mild and humble. He has strength under control. 
in the garden with Peter. Peter, put away your sword. Do you not realize at my disposal are legions of angels probably sitting at the realm of the universe with their hands on their sword, just looking for a glimpse from Jesus to come down and obliterate the people that are torturing him at that time? Don't you realize the power that I have? Nevertheless, I'm humble and I'm meek and I'm mild and I live my life in servitude and subjection to my father voluntarily. That's the whole key of Paul's letters. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, a voluntary slave of Jesus Christ. The idea was in the Old Testament that on the year of Jubilee, when my servitude now with my master is over because all slaves go free, that if I choose, choose, even though I'm a free man, I choose to work for you and stay with you as part of my family, then I would be taken out, they would take my ear, they would punch a hole in my ear, put an awl in my ear, and everybody would know by this hole in my ear, those of you who have males that have earrings, in case you're interested, and it means that I am now a voluntary slave to my master. What Jesus emulated. I am gentle and I am lowly. The word lowly means not prideful, not arrogant, not independent, but under total submission. The babes that we talked about, you revealed it to babes, is the exact kind of relationship that Jesus modeled for us with his own father. The words that I speak, they're not my own words, but the words that I hear from the father. Whatever the father tells me to do, these are the things that I do. What, you don't have an independent thought? No, everything I subject, everything to the father. What, you, uh, you, you, you can't think up something yourself? You can't go your own way? You can't make your own decisions? What kind of man are you? I am the son of God. Why do you think what you want to do is greater than what God wants us to do? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of hearts, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice the difference? The salvation is taking place here already for your souls. You know, it's kind of like in the 23rd Psalm. It's, it's your soul. It's, it's who you are. It's your mind and your will and your heart and your volition. It's, it's your personality. It's, it's everything that troubles you at night that you will find rest for your souls. Well, God, you are, you are king of kings and Lord of lords. You are God almighty. I, I can't do the things that you do. I mean, I don't know why I'm incapable of being hooked up to you and the demands that's going to be placed. I mean, I'm a young ox and you're a seasoned ox and you're the strongest, most powerful ox of all. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. If I am yoked with you, it's not you doing it. It's me doing it through you, which is the higher Christian life. It's me living my life through you. It's me giving you freedom from your sin and the power to do the things that I've called you to do. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not cumbersome and heavy laden. It's simply walking with me. Verse 28 is a salvation verse to come to Jesus. I hope all of us in here have done that. Verse 29 is a sanctification verse where it says, now that you've come to me, stop staying in the stall. Quit complaining about coming out in the field with me. 
Quit being worried about you and whether you're well-fed or you got enough sleep. I mean, if I'm out there in the field and I saved you, you hook yourself to me. You take my yoke upon you. You're the one that does that. And learn from me to be like me, to, to love like me, to function like me, to walk like I walk, to, to let the spirit that infills Christ also infill you and direct you. Learn to be gentle and lowly and not prideful and submissive in heart. And you will find rest for everything that troubles you, every fear that you have, every want that you have, every misrepresentation about you, every slander, every, every someone taking advantage of you, the sickness that you have, why this God, or what about my children, or I don't know what's going to happen. And you can rest your souls because you know that you're connected to the God of the universe, who no one knows the Father like he does, and no one knows the Son like the Father does unless Jesus decides, which he has, to reveal the Father to you. My experience has been, and I'll close with this, that you will not experience the Father if you're too busy doing your own thing. If you give God 15 minutes a day because you're too busy doing all the stuff you need to do, it ain't going to happen. If you really want to know what the Father's like, then take Christ's yoke upon you. Again, and I've shared this with you before, the whole point of Henry Blackaby's experiencing God that's been out like 25 years has been to find where God is moving and align yourself with him. Don't go your own way and ask God to bless something he probably don't want to have nothing to do with, but find what he is already doing and yoke yourself to him. And then the exhilaration of being with Christ, the exhilaration of working with Christ, the exhilaration of well done, good and faithful servant, of feeding with Christ and resting with Christ and, and being connected to Christ will absolutely give your soul peace and serenity and confidence knowing that the Lord of the universe is pleased with how you're living your life since you've come to him. I mean, aren't, aren't you tired of going your own way? And when you do yoke yourself to Christ and he's pulling and you're holding back or maybe you're running ahead and he's saying no, and, man, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of not in being in step with him and having you know, to veer off the path this way and off the path that way? I mean, wouldn't it be great, especially as we see our culture unraveling, to have the assurance to know that you're walking in step with him as his son, as an heir and a joint heir of the Father, a joint heir of Christ to the Father. It is yours, should I say this the right way, it is yours for the losing because he's already provided it for us. All we have to do is take his yoke upon us and trust him. Amen? Let me pray.